Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Mukherjee, the host of New Books in Law. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Marianne Constable about her new book, Our Word is Our Bond, How Legal Speech Acts. Her work offers a new approach to thinking about law and impels its readers to reassess the dominant methods of considering what is law. Marianne Constable is a professor of rhetoric at the University of California at Berkeley. Professor Constable, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became interested in the intersections of law and language. Sure. Um, well, I was born in England. My mother is French and my father is Scottish, and I lived in Canada for a while, um, but we moved to the U.S. when I was seven, and I went to school mainly in Denver. Although I finished high school in California and got all my degrees from UC Berkeley. So I've become a sort of California public school, public university uh, person, um, since I also teach here now. Um, And I got interested in law because I was a philosophy and political science undergraduate major. And someone told me that there was a new program starting up at Berkeley Jurisprudence and Social Policy that would be of interest to me because it was a way of combining philosophy and politics. And as soon as I got there, I got totally sucked into law as a perfect place to think about the questions that I was interested in. And as I was completing my dissertation, I was lucky enough to get a job in the rhetoric department also at Berkeley, hence the language connection and started teaching um, intro to legal discourse and advanced topics and legal rhetoric and that kind of thing. So uh, the the sort of intersection was in some ways assigned to me and I I just got uh, to be teaching and working in that area. Okay, Uh, can you tell us how you came to write your work, Our Word is Our Bond? Uh, well, actually, that's very related to my teaching because I was working on another book, which is what I'll be going back to when I'm uh, on sabbatical later this year. Um, but I would mention to people what I was teaching, and they would say, oh, that's really interesting. Have you written about that? And I realized that other people hadn't written about it exactly the way that I was teaching it. And so I started thinking, oh, I can just take a year off and write a very quick, short, pithy book that would put my lectures together. But you mustn't let anyone ever tell you that putting lectures together is a way to write a book, because it really took me years more then to rewrite all my lectures and my courses that I have been teaching um, to come up really with an argument. Because when you're teaching, you are able to give what the different approaches are and what their limits are, what their strengths are, but you don't have to choose between them. And so by writing the book, I had to uh, triangulate among approaches and come up with what I thought was the right one, instead of just having different options that I could explain. Could you address a little bit about uh, how speech acts, uh, the main topic of your book? Yeah, so the subtitle of the book is How Legal Speech Acts. And I chose that subtitle because in sociology of law, 
there really is still a distinction that's often made between law on the books and law in action. And law on the books is thought to be static and legislative and rule-oriented often, while law in action is what it is that legal officials and then more recently uh, the, the public more broadly is engaged in. But law on the books, it seems, there seems to be a gap between law and books and law in action. And what I was interested in was the way in which law on the books, which would include legal opinions and legislation as well as what it is that people say, what it is that, that is reported, um, is actually a form of law in action. How it is that, in the words of a philosophy of, philosopher of language, um, J.L. Austin, um, law and the books are actually speech acts or ways of doing things in being said. So Austin gives us examples of speech acts, promises or bets or warnings, where someone says, I bet you it will rain tomorrow. It's not true or false, that statement, but it's a doing in being said, it's a betting in being said. And I'm saying, I'm claiming that what law does in being said is it makes claims, or it claims to use the verb rather than the um, uh, sort of noun of a claim, I'm saying law acts, it and how does that differ from the dominant philosophical view as law as a positivist or state system of human law? There is no connection between law and justice. Um, no necessary connection between law and justice. Um, so, so what I what I've claimed in another in an earlier book is that the empirical or the socio-legal approach is correlated in some ways with legal positivism in philosophy, that the empirical approach resembles or has a lot in common with a claim that sees law as posited by human beings, as humanly made, or in the older-fashioned way, um, the command of a sovereign. But now it doesn't need to be a single sovereign, it can be, you know, uh, democratic institutions or ostensibly democratic institutions. So the dominant philosophical view um, is that you can go out and you can uh, see and observe uh, humanly posited law. Law is a system of rules. Um, there's rules about the rules, primary and secondary rules, according to Rachel Hart, and that there's no necessary connection between that system of rules and what counts as morality or justice um, in a society or in a community. And that this is the kind of thing that empirically, if you go out and study the rules or the laws of another society, you don't necessarily see justice happening. You don't necessarily hear justice happening. Instead, what you do is you observe some things, you see some causal relations, you're able to write about them empirically, and justice drops out a little bit. 
Um, and the dropping out of justice is what it is that concerns me, both in the socio-legal empirical study and in the more positivist accounts um, that are given. Um, you, you had asked how my account differs from the dominant philosophical view of law as a positivist um, or state system of human law. What I'm claiming is my account differs not only from sociology and from the positivist account, but also from the natural law view, which is also uh, a, a sort of common way of thinking about the philosophy of law. So the conventional way of thinking about the philosophy of law is that it's a debate between natural law and positive law. In the natural law, people say that God or a higher morality is the measure of the justice of law. And the positivists say, no, law is man-made, it's a system of rules, or it's the command of a sovereign. And what I'm saying is, actually, if you think about law in terms of language, you have a way of bringing justice back in to think about law um, without necessarily having to rely on God as uh, a priori, or as there being these immutable or universal principles that warrant uh, what the relation between law and justice is. Um, and could you also talk a little bit about how your approach differs from that of law schools? Um, and actually, there too, I have, um, I'm, it's more that my approach differs from that of certain kinds of law school education. Um, so my, my claim would be that, and this is borne out, although anecdotally, that my understanding of law as hearing claims and making claims, as being concerned with claims, is very much that of legal practitioners. Um, what it is, is it's sort of law students and some kinds of legal education um, take for granted certain ways of dealing with statements of rules that limit law to those statements or to a deductive statement, a deductive system, or even an inductive one, but something that um, doesn't have the openness or the um, sort of flexibility that I think that practitioners see law as having. So, so the good thing about law school, or the thing that I draw from law school education is the real emphasis on reading and writing and speaking, which is something that I think that the sociologists of law pay less attention to. And I'm saying, no, the law schools get that right. This emphasis on language is totally apt, totally important, but that the limits of understanding law as a static kind of language um, needs to be addressed somehow. And that's what the Speech Act analysis enables me to do. Uh, could you talk a little bit in that vein about the inadequacy of rules to encompass what law is? Um, yes. So, again, I'm talking about the inadequacy of statements of rules. So, if you think about law as a system of statements of rules, there's a tendency to see law as um, static, as immutable, as universal, as not as something that 
you know, sort of comes from down from somewhere, a generalization that is then applied to a particular. And what I'm interested in is the way that legal speech is actually a mutual, mutual interaction. Um, and it's an interaction that happens in a world that also itself changes. So the idea of rules suggests a particular kind of um, atemporality um, that's then applied at a particular moment. And what I'm interested in is I'm interested in the weird temporality of law, which actually law professors and legal education acknowledges insofar as it deals with precedent, for instance, where um, that a case or an opinion or a judgment or something becomes precedent is only retrospective, right? So it's only when the second case comes up that the first case can count as a precedent. And so there's a strange temporality there. It's the temporality of the future perfect, which Derrida talks about when he's talking about language, um, and which suggests that there's more going on in law than simply a rule that is given and that then extends for a certain amount of time and then is applied. It's that the rule is extracted somehow from an interaction or a claim or a set of claims that were already happening among people. Did your lights just go on? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's and, okay. Sorry. And um, so anyway, so, so, the, so the idea is that um, that rules are too limited of ways to look at law. And that's not, it's not a great original point. Um, a lot of people say that, but what they don't offer are ways then of analyzing how it is that legal things happen. And that's what it is that I'm trying to do. Uh, talking, you, you keep bringing up this triangular approach and how sociologists do some things right and law schools do something right. Could you talk a little bit about how um, how you have an interdisciplinary approach to law and how that has helped you explore um, and how that affects your work and uh, how we understand law? Yeah, so, well, as I mentioned at the beginning, my degree was in jurisprudence and social policy, which is an interdisciplinary Berkeley PhD program that used to be more of a combination of humanities and social sciences and is now more a little bit more mainstream sociology of law. So my background is really law and society as well as law and humanities. And I've always been interested in the intersections between disciplines. I've also always claimed that in order to be able to be interdisciplinary, you have to be multidisciplinary first. So I'm always trying to sort of pick up on, well, what is it that historians would say about this that would be different about what anthropologists would say that's different than what philosophers would say. So, so in a way, for me, rhetoric is a great place to do the interdisciplinary work of thinking about what particular disciplines talk about or think about when they're dealing with a particular topic. Um, and I think that law, I also think, I also think law used, well, law used to be its own discipline. So there's a way that law is both very rich on its own, but also that all these other disciplines, which in some ways I think of as secondary to it, 
have ways of picking up just on certain aspects of it. And I'm trying to, by turning to language, I'm looking at how it is that the many disciplines um, are able to get at something that's particular to them. Okay. I, I think it would be helpful to the listeners to uh, take some of the, these ideas and apply it to um, an example. Uh, yeah, I know in your book you talk about the Paul's graph tort case, or maybe Obama's oath, or maybe both. You could talk about one of those. Okay. Um, so, well, I use those for different things in the book. I use the Obama's oath in the introduction, um, somewhat pedagogically, I think, um, to point to the importance that law gives to language. So, I think... Probably people remember, but maybe I should remind them again. Yeah, you should. About Obama's loved oath, where there was, um, he misspoke, or actually Roberts misspoke when he um, sort of had Obama follow him in reading out the oath. And so, let me just remember. Um, so Obama in effect swore that he will execute the office of president of the United States faithfully instead of he will faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States. So faithfully, which is an adverb, got put in the wrong place in relation to executing. Um, and no one thought that where the adverb fell mattered, but it did end up that Obama retook the oath in the way that it was articulated in the Constitution. Um, and what I wondered was, well, but if no one thinks that the placement of the adverb matters, what is it that's going on when, um, you know, the most arguably uh, powerful man in the world is made to re-say his words somehow. So um, the White House had a press relief that said, um, you know, we don't, you know, we think the oath was administered appropriately, effectively, you know, we have no doubt that he's president, blah, blah, but they still had him redo the oath. So I started wondering, well, could there have been grounds for claiming that Obama hadn't been sworn in appropriately, or that Chief Justice Roberts hadn't administered the oath effectively, or that Obama wasn't actually president, um, or that he need not faithfully execute the office? Like, what was going on there? And then the thing that was so amazing is that as soon as he then, sort of in this case, not in front of the TV cameras, repeated the words in the different and right order, Supposedly, those issues were all resolved. And I was just curious, how can someone's words do those things, right? How do words raise these big issues of responsibility? And so, and how is it that um, that, that words can have uh, this way of doing so much, especially this little trivial repetition of the same words just with two words in a different order um, and so I use the oath in my intro to talk about how 
adverbs actually really do matter, even though people didn't notice, right? There's a difference between faithfully executing and executing faithfully. Um, one of them refers to the uh, subject executing faithfully or faithfully executing, and the other one refers to the um, faithful execution of the object of office, right? So anyway, but we don't have to go into that now. Um, but even, but since Americans didn't really notice that or talk about that, then, um, you know, what, what was going on? Well, so then he had to do it, it, it came to me that he repeated the words in the way that they were talked about in the Constitution, right? So he had to follow a particular kind of form, right? And that he had to follow a particular form, that he had to follow follow particular conventions, right? I call them conventions even though they're in the Constitution and they're written down. Um, sort of suggests that swearing to be president is an example of a speech act of the sort that J.L. Austin talks about, right? Instead of, you know, I promise, it's I swear. Um, and in order for an oath, like any other speech act, to be felicitous or happy or successful in the way that Austin talks about, it has to meet certain conditions, and it has to be spoken by the right person, um, in front of the right people, correctly, completely, um, properly taken up and all this. And that there's something about the incorrectness, the, the simple incorrectness of the form that made it that people, especially lawyers, were worried that um, the procedures hadn't been met. Right? So this is the way in which the Obama oath is an example of one of the, you know, ostensibly trivial ways that a speech act can go wrong that nevertheless gets addressed somehow in law. And then the third point, right, if the first one was about adverbs and the order and the second point is about speech acts, the third thing is, well, and what does it do? that he swore an oath at all, right? Not just why does he do the second oath, but why is he swearing an oath, right? What is it that an oath does? And what an oath does is it commits you in a particular way. Um, this is back to the title, our word is our bond. Um, and what what is the commitment that comes in speaking, not just in speaking oaths, but in speaking at all? Um, what What is it about language that it, that when it's done in a particular way, or even when it's not done according to particular ways, sometimes we have new kinds of speech acts coming up. How is it that words can do those things? So that's the, that's the third um, sort of relevance of the Obama oath example, is that it raises these questions of, like, what is it we're committed to when we're, when we're speaking? How is it that words can commit us? Could you talk a little bit about um, Austin and uh, his philosophy and how that impacts your work? Um, yes. <laughs> Let's see. Well, I started out, as I said, teaching this as Rhetoric 160, Intro to Legal Discourse. And so I used Austin a lot and I relied on him a lot. And then I started realizing what the limits of Austin were. And I had to move to other people um, in my teaching and in my thinking, and especially in writing out the book and explaining what I thought. 
Um, so Stanley Cavell, Nietzsche, um, Heidegger. But so the, the importance of Austin for me is that he gives a very clear exposition of what or how speech acts. And he starts out by distinguishing between um, performative speech acts, things that do what they say in being said, like promises, bets, claims, demands, and, and what he calls constitutive utterances or statements or propositional utterances that are um, that are assessed in terms of their truth or their falsity, the way that logic is. And by the middle of his set of lectures, the distinction between performative and constitutive utterances has broken down. And he now says, well, all utterances do something in being said, or and all utterances in some ways have some truth, falsity, uh, value that can be accorded to them. But the distinction is important for him because it allows him to isolate a set of conditions that don't have to do with truth and falsity for the success, or as I said, the felicity or the happiness of speech acts, right? That they, you can't be married by just anyone. You need someone with a license that's recognized within a particular jurisdiction to marry you, right? Or um, if an earthquake happens and interrupts some sort of uh, notarizing ceremony, the notarization hasn't gone through. Or, you know, if you don't have the signatures, or there's, there's a lot of ways in which speech acts um, can go wrong. Okay, these are all the ways that speech acts that we know as speech acts can go wrong, but there's also other ways that speech can go wrong, and there's other ways that acts can go wrong, and speech acts are all of those, right? So they can be Anything we say can be misheard or can be misunderstood, um, uh, can, you know, sort of not be heard at all, um, can be, okay, wrong, uh, not necessarily untrue, but wrong to say. So there, there's, a, there's a lot of other ways that utterances can go wrong than simply as speech acts, right? They can go wrong as speech and they can go wrong as action, right? They can be done by mistake or they can be done deceitfully or they can be done, you know, by, you know, my having my arm twisted uh, if I don't say something, right? So so all of that takes away somehow from the utterance, whether as a action or as speech or as a speech act. And all of those ways of words going wrong suggest um, ways that language is imperfect and also ways that law, insofar as law, I'm saying, claims or makes claims, as well as hears them, can also go wrong. Right. Does that uh, answer your question? Yes. Yes. Could you talk um, a little bit more about Heidegger and Nietzsche and how they filled in the ideas of Austin? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so they... The progression of the book is that I first start out with Austin and explain the ways in which Paul recognizes how speech acts. That that even 
so that really defined my thinking on law schools and law school education that U.S. law does recognize that speech is action. Um, then what I do is I say, but there's when you think about law as uh, static claims or as speech acts that can be determined by whether they fulfill or succeed the conditions that are articulated in rules. When you think about law in these ways, there's still something missing in terms of understanding claims. And I think that Stanley Covell, in his article on passionate and performative utterances, I think that he identifies that, even though he doesn't associate it with law at all. Um, and this is, he says that, well, there's performative utterances and there's passionate utterances. That passionate utterances are always bound up with desire and with appealing to you as much as I. So Austin says, um, you know, I warn you that the bull is about to charge. And Cavell says, well, there's a set of utterances like, um, reassure you that it will all be okay, where the conditions that Austin identifies are not all within the control of the I or the speaker, but rather are as much about the disposition of the you who is about to be reassured, and really depends on you as much as on I. And in my uh, sort of secret reading of Austin, I do actually think that Austin recognizes that, but he doesn't emphasize it for a lot of different reasons. But that Cavell's emphasis is a really healthy reminder to the philosophers of language of what it is that is taken for granted in rhetoric, which is that there's always an audience, and the audience and the relation of the speaker to the audience is as important to the success of an utterance um, as simply what the speaker is doing within a particular context. So um, so Cavell comes in first, before Nietzsche and Heidegger, to stick to your question. Uh, so Cavell comes in first to say, well, utterances within law, claims within law, are always meant to persuade, right? There's always an element of persuasion. I persuade you is a passionate utterance, as much as it's a speech act of a performative sort. And so the you is important, um, more important perhaps than certain readings of Austin would suggest. And that um, speech act analysis has to be broadened a little bit to really understand what, what law is about and what law does when it claims, because it also hears. Hearing is also important. Okay, then what I do is I move to... Um, thinking about how speech act analysis um, itself might have other sorts of limitations, like given that legal claims are performative and passionate utterances, how do they work in the world? Well, they work um, between us, but they also work between us in a way where I can misstate something and you can mishear something, right? So, but it's also the case that the world can change in such a way that neither one of us controls or is in charge of, so that 
our utterances fail to do or to say what it is that they uh, did or said at, at one point due to no sort of failure on our part, but just a way in which the world has gone on, right? So a farmer, you know, promises crops that um, the weather doesn't uh, cooperate with. Um, so, that, so there's these ways that um, the world uh, is a situation in which words go wrong, that um, that is a way in which language is imperfect, um, even though language ostensibly promises truth. And so what I what I do is I bring Heidegger in, and I bring Shana Feldman in, to suggest that if language is always potentially imperfect, or language is imperfect, although it promises truth, and law is language, and law is imperfect in its claims, it's nevertheless mm -hmm. the case that what law does in a way is insist in its own imperfect way on the keeping of the promise of language, on trying to um, correct, however incompletely, the injustice that corresponds with the inadequacy of words to truth, right? The truth of the world, not just the um, ways in which words go wrong between the two of us, right? So, so, so the claim bringing in, um, well, each is a different matter, but the bringing of Heidegger is to show how, um, let, me, let me just think how to do this. Um, is to show that um, what's at issue in the in what we consider the imperfection or the incompleteness or the inadequacy of language to the world is um, what gets claimed in law as an injustice that needs to be uh, a just somehow, or there's the, the the appeal to law is an appeal in the name of law to an insistence that the promises of language be kept, or that things be just in some way, despite the imperfection, the incompleteness, the inadequacy, the inarticulableness um, of language and of law, right, and of the language that law is spoken in. Right, and talking, you, you talked about the context that surrounds law affecting the imperfection of it, and uh, you raised in your book, I thought it was a very interesting question of the inability of the United States law to speak coherently of justice in relation to Native Americans. Uh, yeah. chapter in my other book, Just Silences, um, which is on, the subtitle of that one is Limits and Possibilities of Modern Law. Um, I have a chapter there on Native Americans and, or Native American 
language preservation. And in a, in a way, what happens at the end, in a way, okay, two, two answers to your question. One of them is that, in a way, this book is the background to the Silences book. So the Silences book was about how the justice lies in the silences of modern positive law, right? And that's an ambiguous statement, right? Because it could be that it is laying there, or it could be that it is not telling the truth there, or it could be there's a, there's a lot of um, other meanings that could be given to the claim that justice lies in silences of positive law. Um, but in part, what I was seeing in my Native American chapter is that the Native American languages, from what I can tell, um, don't exactly have the same understanding of law and of justice that has developed so uh, articulately in some ways, loquaciously in some ways, um, out of the Anglo-American tradition. So we can say that U.S. law, U.S. peoples, right, Americans, right, have, have been unjust to Native Americans, but, but we can't name um, completely or exhaustively or in ways that a Native American language could what exactly uh, the injustice was or the justice could be. I mean, in, in some ways, because I think there might not be a justice possible there. But I'm not sure. But 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 my point is that it's not up to my my point there, which is related to my position on sociology law, is that it's not up to an outsider to go in and interview, you know, some Native Americans and then find out, oh, this is really what they mean and translate it back into English. My point is that um, the it, it's not in our language and our law to speak something that's someone else's language, right? You can only try to translate, but there's a different world view built into one's language and the tradition of one's language that isn't sort of a one-to-one -one correspondence, I guess. And so the, so when, so when you ask me to talk about the inability of U.S. law to speak coherently of justice in relation to American, Native Americans. I said that in this book, but I was referring to the other book because in some ways this book tries to explain some of my understanding of language that was in the background of the other one that wasn't actually spelled out. The big example in the other one is the final chapter was on the Miranda warning and on the right to remain silent, and I reinterpret that through Austin's understanding of speech acts in the final chapter. And so then that becomes a little bit the basis of where I begin with this book, is I want to say, oh, so if we do understand uh, the Miranda warning, right? it's a warning, it's a speech act, um, as actually warning an accused that his or her words uh, you know, will be used against him. What is this saying about the language of the system? And I'm suggesting that 
what it says is that um, is that the officials are acknowledging, in some sense, the potential inability of the system to hear what it is that an accused has to say in the language that the accused would be using in ordinary circumstances, right? The extraordinary circumstances of interrogation mean that the ordinary language is, is not necessarily going to be heard properly, right? So this comes back again to my claim that the, that, that, one of, that what, what all what legal institutions do is they don't just make claims, they don't just claim, right, as in, you know, in an opinion or in a brief or, you know, it, the parties make, they don't, it's not just claims going on, it's also hearing that goes on equally. Um, I, I think this ties in a little bit to um, how your work differs from sociological, legal sociological research still. And I was wondering if you could go into detail also about um, why legal claims are neither calculable um, in a way that numbers are or propositional. Um, yes. So, well, so, so again, what, one way of explaining that is to say, well, legal claims are also about um, the disorder of desire in Stanley Cavell's words, right? They're also passionate utterances. Um, so that isn't just a matter of propositional truth, right? A second way of thinking about why legal claims aren't calculable in the way that numbers are is that the assessment of legal claims are not exhausted by their accuracy or their conformity with convention or their empirical effect somehow. There's a, there's a way that um, illegal, oh, illegal claim, I think I haven't said this yet. Illegal claim, it involves at least two things, right? It, it involves some kind of assertion of truth. Um, and it also involves a demand for recognition by the speaker as warranted in making that kind of claim warranted in making that kind of demand um, and that kind of, and that particular assertion. And in so, in this, uh, in, the, in the demand is something that's a lot more complicated than simply um, calculation or the sort of true-false values of propositional logic. Um, I, I sort of, our conversation went in a yeah. very different direction, but we had talked earlier about the, your Paul's graph example. I wonder if okay. uh, you wanted to address that a little bit. Um, okay, what did I do with Paul's graph in the book? I forgot now. Um, well, so you I, talked about how it was an example of good legal writing. Oh, yeah. Okay, now I remember. Okay, so um, what, I, what I drew on was, I don't know if you, did you ever read Plain English Lawyers? Was that one of the ones that you had? Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, it's by Richard Whitting. It's called Plain English for Lawyers, and it's now in, I don't know, at least the fifth edition. I actually use it with my undergrads as a recommended reading, even if they're not writing uh, legally, because it's a, I, I see it as a bit of a rival to Strunk and White, right, the elements of style. Um, and in that book, which is a very good book, um, 
uses Cardozo's statement of facts in Paul's graph as an example of good writing. Um, and that case, which I mean, all law students will know, um, has become a kind of old chestnut of American legal education. It's about it's a tort case um, in which um, this is Paul's graph is standing on a platform and uh, actually I should should I read you the thing from Cardozo? Sure. Oh sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. So what Cardozo writes is that um, uh, a plaintiff was standing on a platform of defendant's railroad after buying a ticket to go to Rockway Beach. A train stopped at the station bound for another place. Two men ran forward to catch it. One of the men reached the platform of the car without the tap, though the train was already moving. The other man, carrying a package, jumped aboard the car, but seemed unsteady as if about to fall. A guard on the car who had to help the door open reached forward to help him in, and another guard on the platform pushed him from behind. In this act, the package was dislodged and fell upon the rails. It was a package of small size, about 15 inches long, and was covered by a newspaper. In fact, it contained fireworks, but there was nothing in its appearance to give notice of its contents. The fireworks, when they fell, exploded. The shock of the explosion threw down some scales at the other end of the platform, many feet away. The scales struck the plaintiff, causing injuries for which she sues. So what Wittig does is he points to an economy of words in the passage, the choice of contemporary concrete words, the arrangements of subjects and verbs, and verbs and objects, so that you know exactly who did what to whom and so forth. And he uses this as a way of showing that legal writing need not be wordy, indirect, passive, or tortuous. And my question about this is, well, why didn't he consider Justice Andrews' description in the dissent equally good? So what Andrews writes, and you'll see it will take me a lot less time to read, is assisting a passenger to board a train. The defendant's servant negligently knocked a package from his arms. It fell between the platform and the cars. Of its contents, the servant knew and could know nothing. A violent explosion followed. The concussion broke some scales standing a considerable distance away. In falling, they injured the plaintiff, an intending passenger. So his words are even more economical, in a sense, than Cardozo's. And his description of what starts to seem like a Ruth Goldberg machine of a case actually uses less than half the number of words than Cardozo, leaving out arguably irrelevant information. Um, all of his sentences and verb clauses are active, um, while some of Cardozo's are passive. Um, and he, he really does link like each uh, sort of object almost becomes the subject of the following uh, in a sentence, in a chain of events. So my question was, why wasn't this selected as an example of good legal writing? Is it less good? Is it less legal? And what about the rest of Cardoso's opinion? So I analyzed the Cardoso, the Cardoso and the Andrews' opinions in Paul's graph, probably in a lot the same ways as what happens in um, law school, in good law school towards classes. But what I'm really interested in getting to is explaining how it is that 
Cardozo's and Andrew's uh, utterances, statements, writings are themselves speech acts that do something. And what I point to is the way that they're not just statements of rules. They're not just taking for granted statements of rules. They're doing things with what it is, with the materials that they appeal to that law students and some law instructors will basically pull out later as being the rules. So, so I'm trying to show how the rules come out of what is before the rules, an interaction between Cardozo, Andrews, their readers, the lawyers, the parties, um, you know, the future public, um, and uh, shows the complicatedness of what it is to actually be making a legal claim. Because in this chapter, I'm using the judges as 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 the ones claiming or or you know engaged in this set of speech acts that will go by the general name of claiming. Uh, you called Paul's graph an old chestnut, and that reminded me of your uh, epilogue, which I thought yeah. was very beautiful. Um, I, do you mind if I read a sentence from it? Okay. Um, Without ground, however, there are no gardens to nourish, no pathways to weed, nor walls to build, much less chestnuts, however shady or stale. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about your metaphor between uh, um, the ground and speech and language? Well, the, the metaphor is not mine so much as Heidegger's. Okay. Um, and I have to say that the original way, the reason I have this epilogue is because I was invited to give a talk at the Critical Legal Conference in Stockholm a couple of years ago now. And the theme was Gardens of Justice. And I had a really hard time trying to figure out what, how do I shape what it is I'm saying around gardens, or do I have to do a whole new project on environmental stuff and sustainability? And um, and so, and then I was I was just googling about, and I found that the chestnut tree is a symbol of um, law in some places, and actually in old English law, and actually sometimes it's a hanging tree, which doesn't show up in my epigraph, but um, but sometimes it's not. So, so my idea here is that, I mean, I should probably just let it stand, but, but the idea is that language is the ground that enables us to um, have, you know, pathways that I am describing here as law, right? Law, law forms the pathways or... Uh, you know, sort of through the city, like the way you wind yourself around. Um, but law is also the walls of the city in, in Hannah Arendt. And I'm playing a little bit with the epigraph that I have to, um, I think it's the introduction, where Stanley Gavell says, the role of ordinary language in relation to the imperative of expression is that it's less in need of weeding than of nourishment. Right? So, for Cavell, instead of just wanting to 
uh, yank out, um, discard, throw into the compost, things that um, don't uh, seem to work well in ordinary language. He wants to sort of nourish the plant and have it flourish. And that was a little bit some of uh, the framing of this book that I think you picked up on in our earlier discussion, which is that one of the things that I'm interested in is just having people be more careful with speech and with words and with language. So I like the idea of ordinary language being less in need of feeding than of nourishment, right? How is it that you encourage and teach and learn to speak, I don't know, more carefully, more precisely, and to hear more carefully, and to not just dismiss or yank out um, certain kinds of expressions, like to try and find uh, how you can nourish sort of more, I don't know, more flourishing uh, sorts of expression. So, so I, I think that was a little bit what I was, I, I re, it was more the idea of the gardens of justice that inspired me to put that in. Although round is the, you know, that's the, the pioneer view. And that's actually related to another question that you had. Um, and that I touched on at the beginning, which is um, how it is that this focus on language um, doesn't require God as the ground, doesn't require morality as the ground. Um, it's in language understood really broadly um, that we have a tradition, a, a way of understanding who we are, that's built into what it is that our law is, built into what law is about. Yeah, could you go into more detail about that and how words raise, addressed, and resolved grand issues of responsibility on their own? I think that I, I think I, I brought that up when I was thinking about Obama's book because what I was thinking was how strange it was that it that just re-saying two words in a different order would make a difference to what were potentially these big moral issues of appropriateness, political issues of legitimacy, um, legal issues of Obama's obligations. So um, that words can do these big things um, is quite remarkable to me, <laughs> right? And that what I'm working out in the book is I'm trying to work out, well, so how is it that language does these things and all becomes a site in which to see language doing these things? So, oh, the Paul's Cross example I can come back to now. Um, one of the things is that, um, well, we all know that law in some way attributes responsibility, right? It holds someone uh, you know, uh, liable or not liable, guilty or not guilty. Um, but language does the same thing, right? I point this out in the Paul's graph when I'm talking about um, how the, the sentence structure, oh, and, and this is one of the places that I use Nietzsche as well, is that if you say, um, law examples are not coming to me this morning, but if you say, the man caught the ball, right? then the man 
is the subject who is responsible for the catching of the ball. Um, if you say the ball was caught by the man or mistakes were made, um, the, the passive construction um, takes the responsibility away from the man who would ostensibly be the subject or the person who would ostensibly have made the mistake. So I'm saying that both law and language make these attributions of responsibility. Language does it at this very basic, you know, a complete sentence requires a subject and predicate, right? A subject who predicates, I say, that there's already responsibility built into language. And then law becomes this much more complicated, complex way of working all of that out in these instances that we describe in all sorts of different ways. And the Paul's graph example shows two ways of describing the same uh, event, right, that could also have been described in many other ways as well. But what language does is it, it, it shapes how it is that you're going to parse a happening out into an event. Um, so. Great. Um, to conclude, I'd love to know where your work is heading next. Uh, well, actually, that was the, the thing about the event and the happening was a good uh, segue into that because I mentioned earlier that I was working on a project that got interrupted when I came to this one because I thought this one would be a little short one. But now I'm going back to that other one, and that other one is on women who killed their husbands and ostensibly got away with it under something called the new unwritten law. And so I'm interested in how it is that, oh, and this was in Chicago at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. So the movie Chicago, the musical, uh, was originally based on an earlier film, an earlier play, an earlier journalist wrote the play um, following a newspaper article that she had written. Maureen Watkins, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's true. Yeah, I mean, there's some truth to it. And I'm interested in the like 270 plus cases of women in Chicago between 1867 and 1931 who were accused of killing their husbands or their spouses or their partners in some way, most of whom were exonerated, and how it is that those exonerations happened supposedly in the name of something that was unwritten, right, the new unwritten law, and how it is that history and law, which both seem to privilege writings as their sources and as evidence, can do a history or have there be a law of something unwritten. So, so I'm playing with the rhetoric of law and the rhetoric of history in the context of these Chicago husband killings, and I'm thinking about how it is that some kind of happening, like someone being killed, is constructed into an event of history or into a case or an instance that is appropriate or not appropriate for certain kinds of law. So, it, so it's about, my, my language is that the, the undifferentiated part is the happening, and then once it becomes named, it's the event. And the way I'm thinking about it just now that's related to this book, um, it is in terms of something that 
we didn't talk about so much in the interview about what I call um, the imperfect aspect of law and of language, which we did mention the future perfect, which was, you know, we will have been there before, right? Um, or the president will have been president by the time it comes around again. The imperfect is a way of talking about temporality as continuing habitual routine and interruptible. So if you say, um, you know, they were in the habit of swimming every day, that's uh, they were swimming every day, or um, I am swimming every day, or we are speaking English, right? Those are all in the imperfect. Um, and the thing is, the imperfect is not a completed action, like in, um, like the man caught the ball, now it's caught, right? The man is catching the ball, right? Um, or we are, my favorite example is speaking, um, because it's continuous, it's routine, it's habitual, and yet it can be interrupted, right? So the interview can end, or the phone can ring, or thunder can strike, um, and one stops speaking, or one stops swimming, but it's still the case that we are swimming every day. Um, and what I'm claiming is that our own language, like our own law, has an aspect of that kind of imperfectness or imperfection to it. And, it's, and the, the things that we think of as speech acts or as events of law come out of that imperfect background, that imperfect tradition, and they stand out either as, you know, particular events like someone's marriage ceremony, right? That's a particular event. It sticks in their mind, but, and hopefully in other places, but actually it can also in history be thought of as just one of zillions of routine speech acts of marriage that just fall back into background and become part of the tradition. And, and so what is it that happens when in, in the telling of history, in the telling of law, when particular events, for instance, gay marriages, right, stop becoming uh, or either non-existent or um, falling back into the background and actually become something that, that, that happens as events now. Uh, rather than just simply happening in an imperfect way. I'm not sure I explained that very well, but it, it's about the interaction between the speech act understood as an event um, and how it comes out from some kind of tradition and then goes, and it can also go back into the tradition. Okay. Well, that sounds like a fantastic project. I look forward to <laughs> yeah. reading more about uh, Chicago husband killers and how yeah. that connects to speech. Um, and I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Okay, well, thank you very much. And thank you for your questions.